If you have your Bible uh, this morning, please turn to Luke chapter 6. We're in a series through the gospel according to Luke, and we're continuing that in Luke 6. And the text this morning will be verses 12 through 26. Uh, We also, as is our custom, will have an Old Testament reading. I already forgot, and I just looked it up. The Old Testament reading is on page 586 if you're using one of our chair Bibles. And if you're not, you want to go for Isaiah 25. So it'll be Isaiah 25, 1 through 9, followed by Luke 6, 12 through 26. And the scripture will be read this morning by Natalie Trock. Isaiah 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Luke 6. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them, and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples, and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him, and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were, cr- were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've spoken to us. You haven't left us alone to wonder um, who you are. what you have done, what you are doing, what you love, what you care about. 
And so we thank you even for how this text reveals that to us. And we ask that you would help us this morning as we look into it together to see what you want us to see and to love what you want us to love, to believe what you want us to believe, to respond to Jesus the way that you would have us. So Holy Spirit, come and help us, lead us, guide us, teach us today, care for us. We need to be cared for. So would you do it through your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we're walking through Luke, we're seeing who Jesus is and what he came to do. A couple of weeks ago, as we considered a large portion of Luke 5, we saw that Jesus cleanses and heals and calls outcasts to be his people. We're saying, who, who are the kinds of people that Jesus is calling to be this new people of God? And it's not the ones that we expect. That theme's going to continue today as he calls the apostles. Last week we saw that true worship of God will be connected with doing good to our neighbor. That Jesus transforms our personal private worship practices by his personal presence and by his unique authority. The big idea this morning from Luke 6, 12 through 26 is this. Jesus teaches his disciples by word And by example, that his is an upside-down kingdom. Jesus teaches his disciples by word and example that his is an upside-down kingdom. Jesus doesn't do things the way that we would. And we should be very glad. (laughs) Jesus doesn't do things the way the world does. And we should be very glad. Yeah, he, he lives and he teaches, he eats and drinks, he does lots of things that we do, but he fully embodies in his time on earth the values of heaven and the values of the world to come. So we'll see this upside down kingdom this morning from our text in his choice of apostles in his ministry rhythms, and in his pronouncement of blessings and woes. So let's see this upside-down kingdom. How is Jesus acting differently than we would, speaking differently than we would, showing different values than we would naturally have? He does it first in his choice of apostles. So Jesus, at this point, has many disciples. Enough that he can choose from them 12. And from those disciples, he calls out those who will be known as the 12, known as apostles. So this is part of a larger group. There will be 72 that are sent out in Luke chapter 10. By the beginning of Acts, there are 120. And it seems like pretty much all of that 120 has been with Jesus from right near the beginning of his ministry. And those are the ones who are gathered in the upper room in Acts, waiting for the promised Holy Spirit to come. We're used to thinking when Jesus talks to his disciples that he's there with the twelve. And he spends a lot of time with the twelve and he talks directly very often to the twelve. But a lot of his teaching when he's talking about his disciples is talking about this larger group who's hearing from him, who's walking with him. But the twelve mattered. They mattered enough that you remember after Jesus' ascension, In Acts 1, while they're waiting for the Spirit to come, the first thing the disciples felt like they needed to do was to appoint someone else to take Judas' place. Do you remember that? And they said, let us choose two people who've been with us the whole time. And then they cast lots, and Matthias was chosen to round out the number of apostles. The number 12 mattered. To these first apostles. Twelve was the number of the tribes of Israel. And there are twelve apostles who will serve as the foundation of the new people of God whom Jesus is calling out. In Revelation 21.14 we see that the names of the twelve apostles 
are on the 12 foundations of the new Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven. So these 12 matter. But as you learn about them, some of them, they're only in these lists. We don't know anything about them. Other than when it says the disciples were doing this, we can assume that they were part of doing that. So when they were arguing about who's the greatest, it probably wasn't just Peter and James and John. It was probably all of them. But a few of them we know almost nothing about. Some of them, you already feel like you know them as a friend almost, right? Like Peter and James and John especially, perhaps Andrew. We're aware of Thomas being a doubter. We're aware of Judas being the betrayer. And that's even mentioned here in verse 16. How tough would it be the other Judas, right? In verse 16, Judas, the son of James. And Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. There's, There's even some places where this... Other Judas is called Judas, not Iscariot. It's like, let's just make sure, right? It's like, it's his new last name, not Iscariot. And so we have this list, and it helps us see Jesus' upside down values. Because what we know about these guys, almost none of it is positive. Jesus doesn't pick teams the way that we pick teams. Right? When you play pickup basketballs, and no, okay, we don't do that anymore. Many of us are too old for that. And you're trying to pick teams, right? It's like, I'm picking somebody tall and athletic who showed kind of in, when we were warming up, they're like, oh, they look like a basketball player, right? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick them. We pick the people that we think will be able to help us. We, think that pe- we pick the people who are going to help us win or make us feel important. But God doesn't pick teams the way we pick teams. And this isn't the first time, right? You think about Gideon and gathering a large army to try to fight against Midian in Judges 6 and 7, right? And God says, you have way too many people. We need to get this down to a smaller number. And it's like, but God, we're like going to war. Usually, no, that's not how I work. He wanted a much smaller group. You think of Samuel and David. When Samuel was told to go to Jesse's house because he was going to anoint the next king of Israel. He sees David's oldest brother and is like, this has got to be him. This guy's tall. He's handsome, he's strong, he's ready. He's got to be the one. And God says, nope, he's not the one. Why? Because man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. He judges by different values. There are no five-star recruits among the apostles. So what kinds of people does Jesus choose? He chooses weak ones. He chooses ones who are overeager, especially when they're trying to call down fire on other people. Just a little too excited to do that. It's like, maybe that's not what I'm here to do, Jesus tells them. But there are different kinds of people. They're not the people that would seem most likely to get along, right? If they tell you in, at work, you know, if you're in management and trying to pick a team, you want to pick people whose personalities are going to work well together. You want to pick people who are going to be able to get along and work well and have different strengths. Jesus doesn't do it that way. He picks people from totally different realms, right? He picks fishermen, And then he picks a tax collector. He picks people who are white-collar, people who are blue-collar. He picks people with different levels of religious commitment. Some of these were very serious about their relationship with God, so much so that Jesus could say, Behold, there's an Israelite in whom is no guile. There's one who's he's not deceitful. He's following God wholeheartedly when he speaks of Nathaniel in John chapter 1. But then he also picks Levi, known as Matthew, who's a tax collector, who had chosen to exist outside the religious structures of Judaism for money. And Jesus says, that's who I'm picking to be on my team. 
If Jesus was picking a team, he wouldn't just come to church to find his team. He'd be going out and finding them where they are. So he picked people with different levels of religious commitment. He picked people with different political persuasions. We see in verse 15 that there's a Simon here, different than Simon Peter. So how's he known? He's called the Zealot. Now, for us today, that's not something that we, that's not a word that we use a whole lot. We don't call people zealots. The, the only thing I can think of in the last like 25 years is in Toy Story when they're being, right? When Buzz and Woody are at Pizza Planet, the very first one, you remember that? And they end up in there with all the little like the, the squeaky toys, right? And Buzz is trying to tell them they've come in peace and Sid pulls them out of there. And, and Woody's trying to hang on to Buzz, and they're all like, he must go, he has been chosen, right? You remember that? And he's going, stop, stop it, you zealots. He's like, they're, they're so intent on what they're here to do, they're not going to let anything stop them, even if the situation demands it, right? A zealot in this day was actually part of a political party, right? It almost would have been more like, well... You know what political parties are. I'm not going to name any of them right now. But it's like, he's one of those. And the zealots were ones who were especially nationalists, especially eager to throw off Roman rule and see Israel returned to its former glory. And Jesus had one of those on his team. Now, is that what Jesus was going to do? Not at all. At least not the way that they were going to do it. Not through political power. But he picks someone like that who's known by that name. Simon the Zealot. So there are people from different classes. People from different education levels. But one of the main things that they kind of had in common was that they generally were from the lower education level. Right? There's nothing particularly special about these apostles. As they're preaching after the resurrection and ascension and after the Spirit comes, people are going, like, where did these guys get this stuff? Who are these guys? Aren't these just ignorant fishermen? Aren't they? And they took note that they had been with Jesus. So there was nothing particularly wonderful or valuable about them. But Jesus chose them. Jesus doesn't target the rich or the powerful with his ministry. He came for the sinners, the weak, the sick, the lost. These disciples are often slow to understand. We like to kind of laugh at them for that. How could they not get it? They were with Jesus. But of course, they're just like us. And we have the Holy Spirit living inside us to guide us into all truth, to help us feel what we should feel, value what we should value, so that we can live as God would have us to live as his people. But it's not just the apostles, right? It's all of us. Paul, as he's writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, says, For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus." who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus doesn't pick teams the way we pick teams. He picks people we would never pick and calls them his, calls them loved, calls them brothers, calls them sons and daughters, And then equips us to do what he has called us to do. It's an upside down kingdom in his choice of apostles. But it's not even just whom Jesus chooses to be his apostles. But how Jesus 
chooses them. So let's look next at his ministry rhythms. We'll look at a couple of them. One of them has to do with how he chose his disciples. Look back at verse 12. Jesus has got a big day the next day. He's going to choose disciples. He's going to heal a lot of people. He's going to give one of his more famous sermons. And so what does he do the night before to prep? In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. This is one of Jesus' regular ministry rhythms. To get alone and to pray. Now you might think, well, Jesus can afford to pray all night. He's God. But Jesus is also completely man. Right? It's not that Jesus overcame the temptation of Satan because the fasting wasn't real and he wasn't hungry. No, he was hungry. Jesus got hungry. Jesus got tired. So staying up all night to pray would feel like you would feel if you stayed up all night to pray. But Jesus would regularly get alone with his Father to commune with him, to receive strength from him. And then he would often come back in the power of the Spirit, ready to teach ready to heal, ready to make people whole. All night, he continued in prayer to God. This is different than the way the world does it. It's different often than the way that we do it. It's like, okay, i got a big day. I've got a lot to do tomorrow. That might be the day that prayer gets skipped because there's no time. I've got to have my prep done. I've got to be ready. Jesus didn't feel like he was ready. And again, he is God in the flesh. If Jesus didn't feel like he was ready to do what God had called him to do until he had prayed, how presumptuous are we to think that we can be ready through our own preparation? He continued all night in prayer to God. But then we also see his ministry rhythms in verses 17 through 19. He's there with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all over the place, from down south, from up north, from on the sea, come to hear him. Verse 18, they came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And so we see again, as we've already seen and talked about at greater length in past sermons in this series, Jesus' regular ministry rhythm. Jesus ministers to the whole person. He doesn't just say, I'm here to preach. Someone else will figure out your medical issues. He was here to serve and to save the whole person. This was a regular ministry rhythm for him to teach and to heal. Jesus' ministry is one of word and deed. And so far, Luke has focused on certain healings, cleansings, or times of casting out of demons. And he mentioned that they happened while Jesus was teaching. So far in Luke, we get like a sentence of what Jesus teaches And then what else happened that day as far as what he was doing. There's been a focus on the deeds and who received those deeds. And here, Luke flips the emphasis. In just a couple verses, he tells us this is what he did. He healed a lot of people. Everyone, I mean, it's like he's a celebrity. They're just trying to touch him so that they can get the power that is coming from him. But here, he flips the emphasis. Jesus heals and casts out demons which is followed by, for the first time, a major block of Jesus' teaching. So it's not that Jesus' emphasis changes. He's been teaching all along, and he's been healing and cleansing and casting out demons all along, and he's still doing that on this day. But Luke wants us to hear this sermon. Other times we've gotten a one-sentence version, and here we're getting all the rest of chapter 6 as a sermon. It's known as the Sermon on the plain. It bears a lot of similarities to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. 
but it's not exactly the same. There are, there are differences even in the parts that are similar, but then there are whole sections that are stuck in other places later in Luke. So most likely this is a representative sermon. Perhaps Jesus preached all of it all at once at one time, but it seems like because Jesus was a traveling preacher, right, a traveling teacher, he probably didn't come up with you know, brand new material every time. It's like if, I, if I'm teaching you about the kingdom of God, it's like, well, you know, kingdom of God's not important today. That's kind of what Jesus was doing. He was preaching the kingdom of God. And so this is the, known as the Sermon on the Plain, which comes from verse 17, when he came down with them and stood on a level place. So it's different than the Sermon on the Mount, though it will have a lot of similarities. So Luke wants to expose us for the first time in his gospel to extended teaching of Jesus. And that's what he's going to do, and that's what we'll be doing for the next four weeks together, is looking at the rest of this sermon. But for today, we get a start on it. And we see that Jesus' kingdom is indeed an upside-down kingdom by his declaration of blessings and woes. His blessings and woes. Luke has a lot to say. He has some here and then he'll have in several places going forward. He has a lot to say about followers of Jesus and their relationship with money. We don't talk about money a lot here. (laughs) And and this isn't just going to be a sermon on giving to the church and why you should all do it. At least I don't think those are the next points. We'll see. But Luke has a lot to say about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to relate to money and what it can buy. And that's mainly what is in view in these first verses. Because the problems that are listed, most of them could be taken care of if you had enough money. And so let's, I'll read those to you again. Verse 20, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. So this is a message, there's a great crowd there, but he's saying this to his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, these woes are unique to Luke. You won't find them in Matthew 5. We're used to the Beatitudes coming from there, all the blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And we're probably used to those. Those are the ones that I learned growing up. And they're a little different. And we don't need to try to fit them together because it's very likely that Jesus said these exact words. It's not just that Luke forgot to add in spirit to poor. Okay? So we want to let these words mean what they mean mean. And so the blessings and the woes, they're each a contrast to the other, right? Blessed are you who are poor, yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, in verse 24, because you have your consolation. So there's a consolation coming for the poor. But for you who are rich, who have it all now, you already have your consolation. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you'll be satisfied, verse 21. Woe to you who are full, For you will be hungry, verse 25. And you who weep, for you will laugh, in verse 21. And then, woe to you who laugh, because you will mourn and weep, in verse 25. Blessed are you when you're hated, excluded, and all the other things, because great is your reward in heaven, verse 23. And then in verse 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you. So each one is parallel. This is very intentional. It's two sides of the same coin. We're reading through Luke uh, as a family, and when we got to this part, one of our children asked, was like, uh, so 
poor people go to heaven and rich people go to hell. Am I getting that right? <laughs> it's like, well, uh, not exactly. But generally, yes. As we saw earlier in Luke, Jesus saves those who know they need it. And the people who are on the outside, the people who are excluded, the people who are poor, the people who know there has to be something more than this, are more likely, humanly speaking, to respond to good news about life with God forever through Jesus. This is what Jesus came to do, is to save the poor, the weak. Think back to Mary's prayer, known as the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, near the end of that song of rejoicing. Luke records her prayer this way in Luke 151-53. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. Here's the blessing and woe there, and then here's the woe. And the rich he has sent away empty. So we don't want to try to explain all this away because it actually fits with what has already been revealed to us. So it's not just that having money is bad and not having money makes you good. There's a pride that can come with having money and what it can buy. There's a desire for comfort and security that money seems like it can provide. But Jesus said he came to save those who are in need. Think back to chapter 4 when he's teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth. He quotes from Isaiah 61 in Luke 4, 18 and 19. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. What did the Spirit anoint Jesus to do? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now again, this is generally how God works. It doesn't mean if you have a ton of money that you're automatically excluded from God's kingdom. But it does mean you've got to trust Christ and not that money that you have. Another text that supports that this is generally how God works. James 2.5 Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Again, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And James is just going like, yep, here it is, which he has promised to those who love him. So it's not that poor people are automatically in or that rich people are automatically out. It's about faith in Christ. In fact, there are some well-to-do women who were part of the larger group of disciples. And Luke 8.3 says that they provided for Jesus out of their means. So Jesus isn't especially targeting rich people with his ministry, and there are some people who have some means, and they're using them to provide for him and provide for his ministry, making that ministry possible. They did that, and then, of course, we also see that in Acts, right, where no one had any need, we're told. There was, none of the believers were in need because others who had more were giving it and were helping take care of those who were in need. Of course, there are many, many warnings in Scripture about the danger of money, but really not about the danger of money, about the love of money. And the love of the things that money can buy. Probably the classic text on this is 1 Timothy 6. Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving for money 
that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's interesting, for those of you who grew up on the King James like I did, you learned that the love of money is the root of all evil. And that's not entirely wrong. It's, it's, it's an interesting one to try to translate. Here it says, the love of money or a love of money, is, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. What it says in the original language is, it's the root of all the evils. It's a source of all the evils. Whatever kind of evils you can think of, love of money can be a source for that evil. And so that's why you end up with a translation in the ESV like, all kinds of evils. It's like all the evils. We, we wouldn't talk about it that way. We wouldn't use that expression. But that's what the original language tells us. So we have kind of direct teaching, like don't love money. It's dangerous. But then Jesus also tells a story. He does this in Luke 12. So we'll see this later on in the series. Luke 12, 15 to 21. He said to some Brothers who had said, come and divide our inheritance. You know, be, and he says, who, who made me a judge over you guys? And then he teaches them. He said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Boy, that's an upside down kingdom, right? It's the exact opposite of what we're told all day, every day. From our own hearts from those around us, and from any kind of media that we consume. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. What a problem, right? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Now, so far, he's not really doing anything wrong. It's wise to steward well the things that you have. But what does he say? And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. But God said to him, Fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Later on in that same passage, he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He's saying to his disciples and to those of us who are his disciples today, if you think you can have it all now, you are mistaken. We say, well, of course we don't do that. I don't think that. It's like, yeah, but really. How has our use of money and the things that money can buy in the last week demonstrated what we value? How has our relationship with money demonstrated whether we hold that loosely, stewarding it wisely, but receiving all as a good gift from God and trusting Him to take care of us. So the key for us as Jesus' disciples is our connection to Christ. How does the love of money, the love of making sure we have enough food and that we have the power to laugh because we don't have to worry about what's coming, how do all those things, how do... How does their hold get broken? It's through our connection to Christ. The key is in verse 22. When he says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Our relationship to other people, to our culture, to money, to things, to 
everything is about Jesus. And it's governed by our relationship to him. So how do we respond to Jesus as we hear him say these things to us? What does responding to Jesus look like when we consider his upside-down kingdom? How do we live with his upside-down kingdom values? Well, your life is not about what you have. It's about who you are in Christ. And as we sang today, as Ralph shared from the ministry microphone today, if you have Christ, you have everything that you will ever need. So our relationship with Jesus must transform our relationship with money, which leads to the one command that Jesus gives so far. He'll give others soon. But in these blessings and woes, there's one command. There are two actual words that are imperatives, but they're together as one command, and that's in verse 23. Rejoice. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. So the first one's rejoice, the second one's leap for joy. They are definitely connected to each other. We don't need to treat them separately. So really there's one command in all this passage about blessings, about woes, about whether you're hungry, about whether you're full, whether you mourn, whether you laugh, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're in the in crowd and everyone's speaking well of you, or whether you're rejected because of your connection to Christ. Rejoice and leap for joy. You're like, yeah, you must not know what I'm going through to talk to me like that. Does Jesus know what his disciples are going through? Absolutely he does. And his command remains. Rejoice and leap for joy. But how, right? Like, how can we rejoice in the day that we are hated and excluded and reviled and called evil because of our commitment to following Jesus and our identification with him? How, how can we rejoice then? By remembering that our reward is great in heaven. Right? He says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Why? For behold, your reward is great in heaven. That is how we can rejoice. By not only knowing that Jesus has upside down kingdom values, but sharing those values. Because when we share those values, we can lose things. And yes, we didn't want to lose them, but we can't lose the thing that we must have forever. And even if we're poor for the rest of our lives here, we will be rich forever and ever and ever. And it's just, we can't even imagine, right? What is our life? We're told it's just a vapor, right? Even this rich man in Luke 12 says, tonight your soul is going to be required of you. Our lives are short. And eternity, it's like Forever which is hard for us to comprehend because everything we do has a beginning and an end. But that's the beauty of this good news that we've been given. Things get old. They lose their worth. They lose their value. We get old. We get things in our eye. <laughs> things go wrong. Things break and we long for a world where that doesn't happen and guess what it's coming and we can't mess it up (laughs) and no one else can either and no one no matter what they do to you can take it away from you no one no one can pluck us out of the father's hand and we see this For the disciples in Acts 5, they were imprisoned, they were beaten, they were instructed not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore, and then we get to verse 41, and it's a fulfillment of this. It's a time of obedience to this command, Acts 5, 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, these were guys who weeks before were arguing against 
arguing with each other about who was the greatest. Asking Jesus, can we have the best seats beside you? I want everyone to know how important I am. And now on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the resurrection, having the Holy Spirit inside them, teaching them Jesus' kingdom values, rather than fighting for position, they're rejoicing that they've lost all standing. Because standing with those people doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. Because we have our standing in Christ. Now we live in an age in which it is not difficult to imagine that we will face the possibility of being hated, being excluded, being reviled and thought of as evil for following Jesus and the values of his upside down kingdom. For many in other nations, this is what they face. While we kind of fret about it, maybe it's going to get bad for us here in America. There are many other nations where this is exactly what they face. Huge pressure not to convert to Christianity because they will lose everything and possibly their lives. We're not even close to that. But even with what we face, aren't we already tempted to compromise so that all people will speak well of us? Those are the people Jesus says woe to. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. See, I want that. I want people to think I'm a nice guy. I want people to think that I'm a loving person. And like, hopefully that's generally true and you think that. But... Especially as we interact with neighbors, as we interact with others where our kids are in school, as we interact with people at work. There are moments when you feel it. If I follow Jesus now, my standing is going to go. If I speak up for Jesus now and say, here's why I can't go with you there. They're going to think I'm backwards. They're going to think I'm stupid. They're going to think I'm one of those crazy religious people. You are. Yeah. You are. And embracing that is embracing Christ. Right? How foolish are we to think that we can have it easy when Jesus was rejected for us? We can handle things going against us because God is for us in Jesus. We have unimaginable riches in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, where Paul is writing to the church in Corinth saying, you better be ready for the offering when the time comes, when I get there. And they were taking a collection for a, a poor church somewhere else. And as he's exhorting them, encouraging them, he gives them a reason. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. See, if we're in Christ, no matter what our bank account says we are, We are rich, both now and forever. And we also have the promise of his presence. It's another powerful truth that breaks the hold of money and what it can buy. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. You say, okay, well, I know I'm supposed to do that. How? Why? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Because we have the promise of life with Jesus through his sacrificial death and powerful resurrection, and because we have the promise of his presence both now and forever, we are free to show that his kingdom and its values are more precious to us than anything we have here. There are many ways that you do this already. So this isn't a get with the program. Unless you need to get with the program. 
So many of you, you give generously to God's work here in the church. You give to the Benevolent Fund each month. Just from being privileged to sit in the seat where I sit, I know that many of you have given quietly, often anonymously, to take care of others in the church, even before any Benevolent Fund dollars would be sent out. That when people in your small group are going through difficult seasons, whether of unemployment, underemployment, or just unexpected events, you give generously. You're eager to help and to meet those physical, very real needs. So that, like it says in Acts 4.34, there was not a needy person among them. Many of you also support other ministries who are seeking to serve the least of these, like Grace Seed working in developing nations, or with Alpha Care serving the least of these here in our city. And there are so many more. But Jesus teaches us by his example, his ministry rhythms, and by his word, by what he says is good, what he says, blessed are you, and what he says, woe to you about. He's teaching his disciples and us that his kingdom is an upside down kingdom. Our reward is great in heaven. Not here, but there. So we know that in our heads, but Jesus wants us to feel it in our hearts. To value what he values. And when we do, we will hold things loosely. We'll value people made in his image over money and what it can buy. We'll seek to serve the whole person, ministering in word and deed like Jesus. And we will long, because it's still broken here, we will long for the coming fullness of the kingdom. In this age, we bank on the promises for the future while living the values of the future kingdom in the present by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is a cost to following Jesus, but it comes with eternal blessing. Our reward is great in heaven because Jesus has purchased it with his own blood. What grace. What a Savior. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that Jesus, though he was rich, became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Would you help us to see with new eyes today how rich we are in Christ? And would you free us from the hold of money, the love of money, and the things that we feel like we can buy, or the security that we can purchase for ourselves. Remind us, even as we take the table now, and remember your body and blood given for us, that that's where our security is, both now and forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.